Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We are uh, in the midst of uh, a series that we're doing to prepare our hearts for Christmas. We're focusing on, on the names of Jesus, on the name of Jesus. Today we're actually focusing on how his name and why his name is the name above every other name. And uh, the place that we're going to look at is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 11. And here you will see how Jesus' name becomes exalted above every other name. I like it when you read scripture out loud with me. So let's read God's word together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> now this is one of the richest passages in all the scripture on the very character and nature of Christ. But it, it is a unique passage in that it is a point of view that you do not see often in scripture. Normally the point of view is someone who participated or saw what was happening like the apostles or someone like that. But in this case it's the actual actors in this dramatic event of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so the actual perspective here is Jesus' perspective on his own becoming flesh, on his own incarnation, and then the Father's perspective on, on how Jesus accomplished his mission. And so what we see here is we begin to see the very heart of God in this whole amazing experience of God becoming man. And in a way, there's a, there's a simple takeaway from this. And the takeaway is this, is Paul says, you should have the same mind as the Lord Jesus Christ. That the way you think, that the way you see the world, the way you see other people should be the same as Jesus sees other people. But if you take it a step further, Paul says, you are to consider others as more important than yourself. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's hard for us in our own uh, estimation of ourselves or the way we look at our own worth, our own value, you know, to either if we're insecure we might have a hard time of thinking about other people as more important. 
Or even if we're prideful and we're haughty, we're kind of arrogant, we think we're God's gift to the world, and it's kind of hard for us to think of other people as more important than ourselves. So this isn't something that can be just a cliche. It's not something that can just be a a kind of religious behavior. This has to be a transformation that takes place in the mind of a person. And the way that Paul says the transformation takes place is when you realize who Jesus is. So I would guess, since you're at a church on a Sunday morning, you probably think Jesus is pretty important. And you probably, if you have any sense whatsoever, think he's better than you. Right? Even if you're not a Jesus follower, you realize you don't live up to Jesus. But here in this passage, it says this Jesus, who's better than you, who is the Son of God, considered you more important than himself. That blows me away. That the Son of God considered me worth more than his own life, considered me more important than his own life. And what I'm trying to get across to you, because this scripture is for every one of you, is the mindset of Jesus is that you were more important than he was to himself. Your life was more important to him than his own life. I'm not sure anybody else can give you that rock-solid kind of sense that you have worth, you have valuable, that you're lovable, except when you realize that the very Son of God said, you are more important to me than I am to myself. Now, it becomes even more special as you, reveal, as you realize what he reveals about himself. And this passage says that Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He's not just a good example that Jesus said, I am God. That Jesus in his very nature in his very essence was God. As a matter of fact, Paul uses a Greek term called morphe. And I know it's Sunday morning and probably don't want Greek class, but you're going to get it anyway. And so the, the idea here of form is actually essence or nature. So in other words, Jesus is the very substance of God. Everything that was true and is true of God is true of Jesus. Every characteristic every attribute. In other words, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was was and is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once. He has all wisdom. He's always the same. He doesn't change. He's not fickle. He has every characteristic and every attribute of God. In his very being, Jesus is God. And when you grasp that, you realize the very God of very God thinks you're more important than himself. This isn't just some religious fanatic. This is your creator. This is your sustainer. This is your savior who says you and your life were more important to me than my own life. That's a pretty amazing thing. Most of us struggle with security. We struggle with identity. We struggle with the sense of worth when life doesn't go the way we want it to go. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been born of his spirit, even in your worst moments, you are loved and you have worth that cannot be taken away by your circumstances or other people. It says here, you know, being God, he didn't need to hold on to his deity 
and he didn't need to flaunt it, and he didn't need to rely on it to become the person that we needed him to become so that he could become our Savior. He didn't grasp it. He didn't hold on to it. In other words, he didn't come into this world aspiring to be deity. He didn't come in this world trying to work up into being divine. He was and is deity, but he let the status of his deity go. You, you must understand this. You could not have a savior who is just a deity. You had to have somebody who could live your life and live it perfectly. You had to have somebody who could die your death and die it substitutionally. You had to have somebody who death could not hold in death, who would then rise again from the dead so that you also would rise from the dead and who would be seated at the right hand of the Father where you also are seated with Christ. Deity could not do that because deity did not mess this world up. It was humanity that messed this world up. And so a human had to take our place. So he was willing to come to this earth, not in the robes of glory, but in a servant's form. He was not in any way some demigod or some semigod. He was equal to the Father in substance and being. And yet, in order for your sake and my sake, he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. He subordinated, said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. See, this passage, and, and, and I think this is a really an essential aspect of understanding the biblical revelation of God, is this passage makes really clear that Jesus considered himself to be God, and he was always professing himself to be God. The reason I say that is because many, many commentators and different ones will say this was made up by the Christian church later. But this passage of scripture that you and I just read was written only 20 years after the cross. And from verses 6 through 11, Paul is quoting what is at least a poem, could be a confession, might even be a hymn. But what we know is this, it was something that was worshipped was a form and a, a part of worship in the early church from the beginning. So the church recognized, this hymn recognizes that Jesus is God from the very beginning. That this was, this was essential to our understanding of Christianity. As a matter of fact, they are saying they got the idea from Jesus, not from the church. The church didn't make up that Jesus is God. Jesus said he was God. Now, Think about this with me. There's not a group of people who have ever existed that would have been harder to convince that Jesus was God than those Jewish Christians. They had, they had lived their whole life hearing the Shema. They had heard the Lord our God is one God. So they would have been very wary. They would have been very suspicious, except that Jesus proved that he was God. It was his very character and his nature. It was his miracles. You see, when you say you're God and then people are raised from the dead, you go, I guess you are. Yeah. If you say you're God in the blind sea, you go, okay. And that's what they were saying. And when they heard him teach, they had never heard teaching like his before. And they knew it was from God because of the way they encountered God in their hearts. 
are the one who says you're worth everything to him? The one who considers you more important than himself is the eternal God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who has always existed and always will exist. But he loved you so much that he said, you matter more to me than my life. Please let that come in today. Let that be a realization today. Whatever it is you're going through, any dark spot in your life, whether it's on the mountain as we sang, or the mountains in your way, he considered you more important than his own life. That is an awesome thing, isn't it? When you realize this. And so the scripture says, then the way that you and I should look at one another is that we should consider each other as more important than ourselves. He's saying, he's saying not just, Paul's not saying here, just have a nice attitude about people. He's actually saying here that there is in your life, if you're a believer, if you've been born of the Spirit of God, there is in your life a new source of thinking. There's a new source of power. There's a new source of, of, of holiness and righteousness in you. One that you draw upon, not one you attain to. Look, you are a complex being. I've asked your wife and she said so. <laughs> you have a spiritual dimension. But the best way to understand your spiritual dimension is to first start with what all of us start off with. We all start off with a soul. The soul is how you think, your mind, how you feel, your heart, how you choose your will. And, and the way that those are uniquely wired within you is your personality. I mean, haven't you heard no one thinks like you? You know, I mean, there's something unique in personality. The soul is the seat of the personality. But it is not necessarily connected to God. It is often more connected to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the soul can be deceived, the soul can be tricked, the soul can be weakened. All kinds of things can happen. All of your real problems, friend, begin in your soul. So what God did is he opened up a brand new spiritual dimension when you gave your life to Christ. He made you alive in your spirit. And your spirit can be seen differently than your soul. Your spirit is where your new self in union with Christ now is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So now if you're a believer, you have a God consciousness. You have a God connection. And now you have a new identity, a source of a new identity in your spirit. But the question is, will you live by your soul or will you live by your spirit? Think about the principle that's in this passage. Jesus, though being very God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but he let go of it. See, you and I, we think by grasping, we go forward. No, by grasping, you stay where you are. Yes. If you hold on to your old bitterness, you hold on to your old thoughts, you hold on to your old patterns, you grasp them and say, oh, you can't take this away from me. You would never ask this of me. If you're grasping and holding on, then you're not moving forward. 
you're retreating backwards. You will not go forward spiritually until you let go of those old thoughts. Let go of those old attitudes. Let go of those old prejudices. Let go of those old lusts. Let go of those things that used to be a source of life, but now you've found are counterfeit. Let them go. Here's, here's what Paul teaches in this. When you unite your spirit with the spirit of Christ, you have, he says, the mind of Christ. <laughs> so suddenly, it's not just your thoughts anymore. The very mind of Christ is now present to give you his thoughts, his feelings, his perspective. And all he's asking of you is that you would not grasp your old thoughts, but begin to open up your heart, your soul, and begin to let his thoughts flow in you. So that instead of it being in your own power, in your own strength, out of your own soulishness, you're now living out of the spirit. Do you understand what this is saying? It says you have the possibility, even if you're the stupidest person in this room, you have the possibility of living with the fullness of the mind of Christ. And in some ways, you almost have to get broken enough to say, you know what, my mind doesn't work well enough. To where you'll go, okay, I will yield to Christ. Paul says, have his mind. He doesn't just say, think like Christ, or what would Jesus do kind of stuff. He says, have the mind of Christ. Yield your mind to now that union in your spirit with the mind of Christ. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me to give my mind to Christ because he knows all things. He has all power. He has all wisdom. He has nothing but love for me. He considered me more important than himself, and he wants to give me his mind on everything I'm going through. Why would I keep grasping my own mind when I could take hold of his mind? Are you tracking with me in this? So here's his mindset, and then how his mindset then takes over the way we think. He, he was utterly and completely obedient to his father. He was obedient even to a particular form of death, not just death, but a particular form of death, a death on the cross. You may not have known this, but in the first century, any word in Latin that had to do with the cross was a cuss word. It was a profanity. It was an obscenity. Anything that had to do with crucifixion, crucified, cross, these were the obscenities of their day. It would be as if I suddenly started to just preach and speak all obscenities all the time uh, instead of normal speech. So when Paul starts talking about the cross, he's, the, his hearers are going, what is he talking about this obscenity for? And yet what we see is that our Lord Jesus Christ left the highest heights of heaven to experience the depths of the worst obscenity of the Roman world. And the reality of that, again, is why would he become an obscenity for us except that he considered us more important than himself? And isn't it interesting how Satan even twists this so that now everybody wears a cross. Even, even irreligious people wear crosses, kind of good luck charms. And the name of Jesus has become the obscenity. 
I mean, how many people, when they hit their hand or they hurt themselves, go, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so here the cross, which was the obscenity, is now the good luck charm. And Jesus is the obscenity. What a switch, right? Are you tracking with me on this? I don't know. This might upset some of you, but I, I think for most of us men, we never outgrow the joy of vulgarity. I, I've often been, uh, even in the pulpit, been told that I use words I shouldn't use. One lady one time gave me a list. And she said, my mom's coming. Please don't use any of these words. But I have to tell you that it breaks my heart when people use Jesus as a cuss word. I can handle almost anything else, but when someone takes the name of the one who considered me so important that he would become an obscenity for me, and he's used because you hurt your finger or because somebody cut you off in traffic, it just seems like they're not realizing that they are using the name above every name in a way that only Satan could laugh at. See, he was willing to leave all his privilege behind. He was willing to come not in the robes of glory, but to come as one that we would make into an obscenity because he cared that much, because he considered you more important than himself. And when I look at that, and I, and I hear Paul say, have this mind in you. How can there exist racism in the church? How can there exist classism in the church? How can it be that if, no matter what my status is, if I understand Jesus, then I understand he is the most glorious of all persons that has ever lived, and yet knowing me fully, Knowing me all the way to the bottom, he loves me all the way to the top, and he considers me as more important than himself. How can I consider my race more important than someone else's race? How can I consider my education as more important than someone else's education? Or my bank account as more important? If the Lord of glory considered a sinner like you and me as more important than himself, how can I not have that same mind as Jesus? Well, when you, when you get this, when you really begin to understand this like Paul did, you see, Paul understood who it was that considered him so important. And so Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 8 what it means to him that Jesus is God. In verse 15, he begins at the very beginning of, of what, what allows you to become a spiritually mature person. He says the first thing that you have to get rid of is your fear. That you see, if, if, if Jesus is who this hymn says he is, then Paul says don't sink back, don't shrink back to a spirit of slavery which leads to fear, but rather 
Stay in that place of adopted sons and daughters who cry out, Abba, Father, no matter what you're going through. So I want you to turn to a person next to you. Point your finger at them. Come on. Look at them and say, you should be fearless. Say it again. You should be fearless. And then say to them, don't shrink back. See, there's, a, there's an issue with many of us that as soon as we see something bigger than us, or as soon as we see something hard or difficult, we start shrinking back and we give in to fear and we forget you matter more to him than his own life mattered to him. So Paul says, look, even the present sufferings are not anything compared to the glory that's to come. Even if you're going through a time right now where you're having a mountain in your way, then he is still with you. And he is going to use the mountain to make a more substantial you. And Paul says, look, if you got this, you understand this, who this is that cares for you. Then he says, I'm not going to be afraid of death or life or angels or principalities. You know, so many people are scared of Satan. And Paul says, I'm not afraid of principality. He's talking about Satan. You understand Satan is a cockroach with a big mouth? What happens with cockroaches when you turn the light on? They scatter. But you see, if you're afraid, you don't turn the light on. But Paul said, I'm not afraid of principalities. And then he said, I'm not afraid of the present and I'm not afraid of the future. And why was that so? He said, because if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, this isn't a nice Christian slogan. This is the truth. If he says you matter more to him than his own life, then you can say you are for me. And then if you are for me, I can say, then who can stand against me? (laughs) Thank you. You know how much I love that. So what does that mean for us when we get to that place? Paul says, then you begin to realize I'm more than a conqueror. But here's here's the thing. You got to realize it's not you conquering. It's the incarnate Christ having sent his spirit and now you are more than a conqueror. Now one of the things I want you to get from this is is that religion will never work. There, There were never any moderate reactions to Jesus. John Stott was one of the great preachers of the gospel and he looked at the Gospels and he said there were three reactions. The first was the religious people wanted to kill him. The second was that other religious people were afraid of him and ran away from him. And then there were those who were smitten by him. And they wanted to follow him with all their heart. You have to ask the question, which one are you? You know, if you've been smitten by this one who is smitten by you. I, I, I keep, the older I get, the more I realize. I have adored things in my life that did not adore me back. I have worshipped things that didn't have any worth. 
But when you give yourself smitten and all to Jesus, when you are when you are destroyed by his love, you will never, ever outgive what he gives back to you. But there's really, in a sense, and it, it might be hard, and I, I, I know some of this is developmental, but there is a piece where at some time you just have to go, Jesus, I am so passionate about you. Because I don't know how you get through life and the trials without a, just a, a, almost an extreme kind of passion for Jesus. Because he had an extreme passion for you. Still does. Well, let me, let me talk a little bit about what the, the dynamic that comes here for loving people. Not just for loving God, but for loving other people. It comes out of this revelation of love that exists in the Trinity. Now, there are people who do not believe in the Trinity. There are people who believe there is one God, but that he does not exist in three persons. Uh, there, are, there are groups of people who talk about a revelation of God where there's a singular God, but there is no distinction of persons. The biblical teaching of God and the revelation of God himself is that he has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you believe in a non-Trinitarian God, that there's just God, no persons, what you have to, you have to admit to is that, there, that therefore the God you serve never knew love until he created humans. And you would have to admit, and this would be true of Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other groups like that, you would have to admit that that God created people so that they would love him. But when you have a Trinitarian view of God, that God is a unity, there's only one God, but that this God has always eternally existed in these three persons, then you realize that, that, that the biblical God has always lived in relationship, that he has always lived in community, and that though it binds the three together is the love that they have for one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit is the personalized expression of that love between the two of them. And so instead of creating us so that we would love Him, He created us so that He would love us. He didn't need to experience love. He needed to give love. And so you see, when you come to Christ, the invitation isn't just to escape hell. The invitation is to join the trinity of love. For you to be right in the inner circle, right in the midst of it. Again, I cannot say it enough, it blows me away. He considered you more important than his own life. Very few people have considered us more important than their own life. So, if we understand the love of God and the mind of God to love us in this way, not to take love from us, but to give love to us, it changes the way we love one another. In other words, instead of the source of my love being you loving me, the source of my love is the Trinity, which has eternal and non unconditional love for me. And then I have something to give to you. But, but here's the problem so many of us have is, is that... We only really feel important when, when people are receiving or, or affirming that we love them or that we are meeting their needs. So there is, this, there is this thing where it's really hard to receive for many of us. 
where we have kind of a broken trust mechanism. When you receive, you have to trust. You have to, you have to be vulnerable. When you give, you stay in control. I'm in control of what I give. I'm not in control of what I receive. And that feels a lot more dangerous, a lot more hurtful, perhaps. And so what happens is we'll say we're loving you in the love of Jesus. But the test is, what happens when I love you and I give to you, but you don't respond the way I want you to? Well, my response to your response will tell if it was really the love of Jesus. (laughs) Or if it was just me trying to get, you know, my purpose or my worth or my value. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in an utterly dysfunctional family. And, and giving was a mess. Nothing was ever without strings attached. And I, I, I can tell you that, that what really excited people in my family is if in July you were still talking about the Christmas presents. <laughs> oh, it's just what I always wanted. Oh, thank you so much, you know, kind of thing. Because you had to go over the top. You couldn't just go, oh, thanks, that's nice. What, you don't like it? Oh, it's great. It's awesome. And it wasn't. (laughs) Particularly, I had this one aunt who always gave me the most embarrassing presents, and you had to wear them. (laughs) And mom would say, go thank your aunt. I don't want to. I want to tell her to never do it again. (laughs) Kind of a thing. And you, you realize that a lot of times the receiving and the giving is really where it's painful. It's where the hurt has happened. It's where the trust has broken down. So when you can actually give, and it's about that person, then you're demonstrating a dynamic that you have have changed sources where your love is, is from God, and you're a warehouse, not a factory. And you're distributing and giving that love. And and how they respond is up to them. Because you're doing what God has asked you to do. It's a completely different dynamic. Listen to me on this. Most of us, when we come into the love of Christ, we have very small opening for him to meet. But he keeps meeting it and meeting it. And what happens is when when you allow that love to come in, the opening gets bigger and bigger. And you start to see that even the hard times, they're examples of his love in everything that's ever happened in your life. And eventually you begin to realize that you can count it as love. And when you can count something as love, your heart is restored and your trust is renewed. And you grow as a person. And you're able to really, really live as more than a conqueror because because love is beginning to chase the fear away. Have this mind that is in Christ Jesus. So what do we do when we fail? We go right back to the love. Every time you fall down, every time you do what you don't want to do or you do things you know you shouldn't have done, whatever it is, You go back to that love of the one who says, I knew exactly what I was getting into when I got into a relationship with you. Well, the second part of this uh, teaching here is that Jesus, who is very God of very God, takes on a second morphe, a second nature. He didn't stop being God. 
but he takes on the fullness of our humanity. He, he becomes, who is fully God, becomes fully human. And this is one of the most amazing things to me of how important God felt like the material world and your physical body is. In most religions, the physical is seen as either temporary or evil. But God said it's neither temporary nor is it evil. And how does he show this? Well, at Christmas, God took on a body. And at Easter, God redeemed a body. So you begin to realize that if you're just religious, then the physical tends to make you feel uncomfortable. You want to kind of only focus on the spiritual and not talk about the physical or not think about the physical or to see the physical in some kind of evil way. And then if you're secular, if you're kind of an irreligious person, then the physical becomes everything. It becomes worshipped. It becomes that the only value that matters is pleasure and fulfillment and happiness and all these things. So if you contrast, in a sense, the biblical view of sex, which is a, a physical and spiritual act, if you contrast that to the, to the religious view and the secular view, it's very interesting. So the biblical view of sexuality is this, that when you unite your body to another person's body, you're not just uniting physically, you're uniting spiritually. That your soul is uniting with their soul. And so in the Bible, the idea is that sex is beautiful but dangerous. It, 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 there's a danger that if you connect and disconnect and, and you attach and you detach, that eventually you will not be able to really unite yourself to anyone in a very meaningful way because you have broken your ability to attach. Though you can physically still connect, you're not emotionally and spiritually and lovingly connecting anymore. So the Bible says the only safe place for something so beautiful but so powerful is in a committed covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. But religious people look at sex as dirty. Look at it as a necessary evil in order to continue the reproductive and cycle of, of humanity. I remember I was talking on this subject one time, and this lady was about 90 years old and goes, that's the way I looked at it for 75 years. I was like, thank you, lady. Okay, shut up now. Don't want to hear any more about that. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you talk to other people, I talk to friends about, you know, their lives and their emotions and all the issues that they're going through. And they're like, well, sex is just biological. You know, it's just like an appetite. You just have preferences, you know, like a cheeseburger or, a, you know, like Italian and Chinese or you just make different, you see. But the problem is if all it is is an appetite to be satisfied, if that's all it is, why does it break your heart when someone breaks your heart? Why does it destroy your soul if it's nothing but biology? I mean, I've been disappointed in cheeseburgers, but I still eat cheeseburgers, you know. <laughs> And I don't have a picture of a cheeseburger on my computer, you know? Are these nervous laughters that I'm having here? Some of you do have cheeseburgers on your computer, huh? See, we've struggled somewhat because we've allowed religion to define physical 
or we've allowed the secular to define the physical instead of our creator defining the physical for us. And our creator says both the physical and the spiritual are good. Amen. Guess what? Even in heaven, there's a physical reality. I love this. We're going to eat and drink together in heaven. The consummation of all things when the bride comes together with the bridegroom is going to be a feast of incredible food and drink. I guarantee you, no calories, no. But yet, everything you've ever enjoyed here is a minute portion of the joy you will have in what you drink and eat there. But not only that, it says we'll sing and we'll dance. Some of us, it will be the first time we dance right. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'll get some rhythm. You see, what we see is God God didn't say it is bad. He said it needs to be redeemed. And so heaven, these realities of physical and spiritual realities come together in perfect balance and harmony. I want you to understand what this teaches us about God. Please, please hear me. Our God is very sympathetic. Our God knows exactly the depths of despair, hopelessness, sinfulness. He knows every single emotion, and he goes right down into that emotion with you. But you see, if God were only sympathetic, then all he could do was just say, oh, I'm so sorry you're having to go through this. But our God is both sympathetic and empathetic. Which means not only does he have sympathy and know and can feel with you, but rather he also has a strategy to take you to the heights. You see, I don't just want somebody who can sit with me and say, that's okay, you're going to be okay. And they have no idea how I'm going to be okay. Our God is a God who can feel exactly what you're feeling, but can tell you the path to get from where you are to the heights that you were destined for. There isn't a single sorrow of yours that he will ever waste. Because he himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he knows how to take you from the cross to the resurrection. And so that's why Paul keeps saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Are you tracking with me today? So the word of, of our God tells us something about the Father's perspective on Jesus' mission and work. See, Jesus, being fully God, chose instead to willingly lay aside his powers and his presence as a deity. And he emptied himself in such a way that he came in the lowest form that he could possibly come. As a matter of fact, Paul says he came as nothing. This is pretty amazing because some of you, I I can feel it, some of you have wrestled with thoughts I am nothing. I am nobody. I have no power. I have no choice. All of those kind of nothingness conversations that go on in our head. Do you understand this word is for you because the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be nothing. He was willing to do his mission as nothing. Because see, what he trusted wasn't his deity. What he trusted was his spirit-filled humanity. He didn't look at his own personality. He didn't look at his own talents. He looked and said, I will only do what the Father's doing. I will only do what the Father's saying. 
He was equipped and spirit-filled in his nothing humanity, which means in your nothingness, you can be equipped and filled with his spirit. But this so pleased the Father. This is the thing that this passage is, is, is speaking so loudly to us, that the more that Jesus didn't grasp but emptied himself, the more the Father swelled up with joy, the more the Father swelled up with love for him. Do you know, it isn't normal, it isn't usual at a baptism that the Father thunders, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He couldn't even keep quiet. I, I don't know if you grew up with hymns. I grew up with a hymn. There's one I've always loved. And, and the chorus of it goes something like this. My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. Do you know what the father was saying? Even though he was having to forsake his own son, even though he's having to reject his own son, do you know what the father was singing over the cross? My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, I love thee now. Because as soon as the debt was paid, Scripture says he was exalted. And his name was given a name which is above every name. You see, Jesus gave up his status, and now he has a status of a name that's above every other name. He gave up his name, and he's received a name that is higher than every other name. He never lost being God, but he was willingly to empty himself, to become nothing. Why? So that God would anoint him. And in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and with the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I think that many of us in this room have such low expectations of what God will do with our lives. But Jesus, who said, I became nothing, healed the sick, set the captives free, resurrected the dead. And he said, this same spirit that anointed me is the spirit that I've sent on you. And you cannot say anymore, I'm nothing. It'll never work for me. Jesus became nothing and he changed the whole world. You can be nothing. But if you'll be anointed by the spirit, if you'll be empowered by the spirit, if you'll be filled with the spirit, your destiny is secure. Will you stand with me? Would you do something? Would you close your eyes? And uh, if you take just one of your hands, just that with palm down, just one hand with palm down. I want to ask if, you, if, you'd release, if you'd release some things that are keeping you from your destiny. And the, the main one is fear, friends. So whatever it is you're afraid of, if it's life, if it's death, if it's angels, if it's principalities, if it's the present, if it's the future, if it's tribulation, Paul says, whatever it is, would you let it go right now? Anything you fear is not as big as the Jesus who holds you dear. He considered you worth more than himself. Can you not let go of these things? Because you see, fear is a form of worship. So will you say this with me? I choose fearlessness. I will not shrink back 
to a spirit of slavery governed by fear. I choose into my adoption as a son or daughter of God. Now, that, that was multiple choice there. I'll try it again. I choose into my adoption as a son of God. There you go. I heard some daughters that time. Hallelujah. All right, same with this. Keep your palm down. I choose to release my fears of my present sufferings. And I declare that neither death nor life, principalities or powers, angels or demons, the present or the future is going to keep me in fear. I am more than a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Now here's what I'd like you to do is to make a fist. Hold on. Take hold of that adoption. Take hold of that identity that comes from your spirit, not your soul. You have to let it into your soul. Let it into your mind. It's the mind of Christ for you. But take it like a fist now and say with me, if God is for me, who can be against me? Say it again. If God is for me, who can be against me? You see, we're in fighting position now. You are important. You matter. Can you, can you hear me today? Your physical and your spiritual matter. Even heaven will be a coming together of both physical and spiritual. God cares for you in a way that is deeper than any of us can understand. But he also has a strategy for us. He's not just sympathetic, he's empathetic. He has a way. Will you, will you receive today? I, I'm not making it so, it is so. Will you receive that, like Paul said, you have the mind of Christ. Be renewed now in your own mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed in your mind. Transformed. Come on, you can, you can receive this. You don't have to achieve it, you just receive it. And let his mind begin, because you're no longer grasping your old thoughts, you're taking hold of this new creation that you are in Christ Jesus. We seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen.